So, Sylvie. Yes, Bestie? What are we talking about today? What? We are talking about furries. It's the furry episode! Woohoo! Woohoo! Intro music's gonna go here. That's our cold open. Insert intro music here. get started um i want to do some like episode four three and four wrap up talking stuff um shout out to our loyal listener audrey who turned me on to the human domestication guide hypno kink setting oh i've heard of that i was not familiar i i don't know the details of it but it sounds very intriguing yeah i poked around a little bit and it was very i thought it was very interesting Apparently there are some fics that are in the scene that are literally longer than, like, the Dune novels. Oh my god. So Those are very long. There's a lot of good human domestication hypno out there. I myself am clicker trained, so I'm thinking I'm good. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about clickers. No. Um, also, shout out to Audrey for being, like, Reddit as a place for a lot of... Um, audio erotica hell yeah that's like independently made and better probably than some of the mainstream stuff we were listening to let's let's hope my main here's hoping yeah my critiques of the mainstream audio erotica still stand Mm -hmm. as we were talking about it but i do think it's good that there is like erotica out there that's independent i mean it's usually the case though is like independent erotica is usually better than the heavily produced stuff i i think that's true for a lot of erotic content in general. Capitalism makes things less horny. Capitalism makes things worse. We we talked about, uh, you know, the winged arrows and the wingless arrows yeah. and sex under communism. And uh, yeah, yeah, we stand by that. We stand by that. And also, in case anyone disagrees with that, there's a really good book called Why Women Have Better Sex Under Communism. There's a whole book about it. Uh, which is about how women were able to live more freely because... In Eastern Germany, uh, after World War II, because they could leave their husbands. Yeah, that's a big uh, sticking point. Yeah. Giving women autonomy means women have better sex. Hell yeah. And this is why it's good that young people aren't fucking anymore. Wait, you lost me. (laughs) (laughs) You see some people complain that like, oh, all the women now are fucking older people. Who the hell is saying that? No, it's actually true. In data speaking, young men are having less sex and young women are having less sex, but more of the sex that young women are having is with older men, or older people in general. Seems potentially worrisome. It's not a great piece of data. No. But it is It is explained by the fact that when you give women a degree of, uh, of sexual and personal autonomy within the constraints of obviously, like, living in a post-Roe v. Wade world, you know, in a post- um, Planned Parenthood v. Casey world in a post now, you know, like, we, we don't have abortion protections the way we used to, and sexuality is now a little more constrained, mm-hmm. you know, like, as a young woman, it makes a little bit of sense. If, if I could get pregnant, my sexual behaviors would be very different. You having a lot of raw sex? No. <laughs> uh, unfortunately not. <laughs> that's not the point. That's not the point. 
But the point is, I, there are, the problem isn't that women don't want to fuck you. The problem is capitalism. The problem is capitalism. Because there's less of an incentive for young women to form lasting relationships, and there are material benefits to dating people who are older than you. Oh, you know, I didn't think about the... You know what? See, this is what happens when I don't think about the materialist angle. We were just talking about this earlier. You always got to stick with the materialist angle. Uh... It's not, it's not ideology. It's, 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 it's materialism. It's all materialism. It's materialism all the way down. This is the first and only orthodox Marxist trans podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, let's talk about animal people. Let's talk about fucking animal people. Mm-hmm. The ethics of fucking animal people. Yeah, it's a great Patricia Taxon video. We will get to uh, momentarily, but I want to start with... I want to start with our own journeys to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. furriness and furry dumb. We are both furries. We are furries on this podcast. This is a furry podcast. And I, I, want, to, I want us to define some terms, mm-hmm. define what that means, and uh, talk about how we, how we came to that conclusion about ourselves. How did you become a furry? That's a good question. It's a question I posed. Um, I always, I think it started with the fact that I always preferred cartoons over live action media mm. which lends itself to anthropomorphized uh you know animal just more readily mm-hmm. um and uh i think that has a lot to do with autism which we will get into uh the autistic is one of the three core tenets of furrydom um and i think that was kind of a, a latent uh, thing for a while. I don't. I, I. I. didn't always identify as a furry, obviously. But between that and the other kind of big uh, instigator for me was figuring out that I really liked pet play, specifically puppy play. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that exploration helped me figure out that the idea of just like being a dog person and having soft fur and uh, a tail to express myself with and floopy ears was something that I desired very deeply. I don't consider myself a Therian, which is a, a term we will define very soon, because I don't identify necessarily as a dog, but I, I do identify as a furry and my fursona is a dog. Mm, just a little puppy. Just a little puppy. I, for the longest time, denied being a furry. It's very easy to do that because it's very, it's very stigmatized. Actually, I want to talk about the first time I ever heard the word furry. Oh, okay, go on. The first time I ever heard the word furry was in high school. It was when um, I was in PE class and one of the drug dealers at my high school turned to me and asked if I thought that Elmo was a furry. And uh, in response, I said, what? Um... That's a good response. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, you know, is Elmo a furry? And I was like, what the fuck is a furry? And he was like, you know, someone who has sex in a furry animal costume, which is not the correct definition of furry by a long shot. But it was the one that I was working with. And obviously this was, um, you know, the, the connotation the assumption that we were supposed to make was that is, uh, wrong disgusting, um, and not something to ever aspire to. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think because of the 
kind of social implications of being a furry. Um, I remember there was there was um, this one guy at my high school. Uh, I'm not going to say his name because he deserves privacy uh, as a fellow furry. But he was very openly a furry. And I'm not going to speculate about any neurodivergence there. But um, I will say that he had a rolly backpack. <sighs> Read into that however you will. And this this guy, this fellow... He, um, he talked about being a furry in the yearbook. He was interviewed. Whoa. Uh, and talked about being, uh, I believe it was a Bay Area Husky. I just outed myself for growing up in the Bay. And, uh, there was a lot of, uh, joking speculation that he was going to wear a fursuit to one of the dances, uh, which unfortunately did not happen because that would have been fucking iconic. That would have been amazing. But this was... You know, he was an object of pretty widespread derision. And honestly, if by whatever unlikely chance he ends up listening to this podcast, um, I hope you're doing well. I genuinely do. I, I, I understand you better now. And, um, I, you know, I took part in that derision for sure. Mm. And that's not something I'm proud of. But I think that I just use that anecdote to kind of paint a picture of at least the uh, the view of furries in the social environment I grew up in. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because I was first exposed to furries. I was definitely in middle school, but as many people know, I am a middle school dropout. It's more like middle school age. Um, and so, yeah, I was like loosely aware through like internet mm-hmm. stuff, like of furries concept. Mm-hmm. But then I think the first time I encountered like furries as a as a embodied sorry um kitty host is distracted because I uh needed to pick up a fidget toy um autism we'll talk about it we definitely will um but I was actually it was an XKCD comic what is that I don't know anything about it's like it It's like a really it's kind of like this like weird holdover from like you know, pre-Reddit atheism. So oh, like, dear. No, no, no. But, like, back before there was Reddit, there were, like, rationalists. And these are people who, like, would be, like, STEM people. But, like, a lot of them didn't become Reddit atheists because compassion was a big part of their thing. Not a part of Reddit atheism. Not a part of Reddit atheism. So there was a lot of, like... I would say XKCD kind of comes from this, like, you know, it's pro-tech, you know, kind of STEM world. But it's compassionate. Mm. Um, and I was, you know, I was a kid who was forced into STEM. Oh, dear. When I was in middle school. I'm so sorry. It happens to all of us. I have a creative writing degree now, so it's, it's what all worked out. <laughs> um, so that being the case with, um, as it comes to, to, to STEM and this idea. So there's a comic where, like, someone is making fun of a furry. And then the hero character comes along and says, basically, fuck you. And, like, I want to hang out with furries. It's like... And then they say, like, I think it's we- your fetish is weird as hell, mm-hmm. but I don't like the way that you're treated and bullied. Interesting. And There's, so I was like, that's that's politically complicated. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think it's very, I would describe that as, like, New York solidarity. <laughs> where it's like... <laughs> that is a very New York brand of solidarity. Where it's like... Your, your fetish is fucking weird, but I respect your right to have it. It's like, hey, why are you bullied on the weird freak kid, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like, it's like this... It's like, like, you almost hit this stupid bitch trying to cross the street, you know? It's like that kind of... I'm walking you. It's that kind of thing where it's like, you're mean about it, but you think that the inherent discrimination or 
you know, stupid or cruel behavior is wrong, Mm -hmm. but you still think that the subject of ridicule is weird. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I think that there's something deep to that in in, in my eyes. But anyway, so that's my first experience with furries. And then I denied I was a furry up until like a year ago. Um, (laughs) um, Happens to the best of us. It happens to those of us who have low rad scores. Um, Can't relate. I'm off the fucking charts. I have a, I have a, I have a shockingly low rad score. It is based on your fifty-page D and D manual. <laughs> uh, shockingly low. I wrote that. I started writing that when I was an undergrad. I have since gone to two full-ass graduate programs. Anyway, rad scores aside. Rad scores aside. What changed your mind? Or what, um, not changed your mind, but allowed you to embrace your furry identity? I got a fursona. Tell me about that. I just, so I, everyone knows I'm a kitty. I'm kitty. This is well known. And so, like, pet play was, like, another big avenue for me. hmm You know? And then also exploring, like, not just pet play, but, like, like when you remove it from the scene, it's like, I just sometimes want to be treated like a little kitty. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, something interesting. And then also, like, you know, because I'm, I'm dating the person, my partner, you know, is also a furry. And so... As is often the case. As is often the case. And so I just kind of, like, started getting, like, more into, like, and exposed to furriness. Because it was always something seen as, if I embrace this or address this, it, I become the object of ridicule. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of projected it, you know, especially in college, people like always make fun of me like, oh, you're a furry, you're a furry. It's like, no, I'm not, because I wasn't really at that time a furry. Sounds a little bit like transness. Yeah, and also... Uh, also, related concepts, as we will get into. Yeah, also, fuck those people, most of them bullied me into not, into not transitioning. Fuck them. Yeah. Anyways, unrelated, they, all those people suck, and I don't know. I assume they're all doing fine now. The main ringleader of that, her grandfather. This I'm just gonna have this fucking girl. Fucking go off. Her grandfather was a weapons contractor during the Vietnam War. War crimes. So we love a war profiteer. I will. I'm not gonna get any more details, but you can find them. They develop primarily helicopter rotors. And yeah. Her, and her mom was like a West German pop star. That's too much information. Oh my god. Yeah, this this girl had no chance. Anyway, so being with your current partner um, helped you embrace that identity? Yeah, being with my current partner and also getting to, like, do pet play, mm-hmm. you know, then physically, like, little, getting things that, you know, I had, I was wearing the kitty ears before I was a furry. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to note because pet play and uh, the furry fandom are separate phenomenon. They mm-hmm. are as we've, you know, clearly demonstrated, related, but they are not inherently tied together and are certainly not the same thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And I think it was watching furry porn that, like, really did it for me. Also a lot like transness. Also a lot like transness. It is okay to discover your identity through erotic pursuits. I would say it is even noble. I, I find it very noble. I think the erotic is an important part of our lives. We have a podcast about that. Yes, we do. <laughs> um, let's let's define some terms. Let's define some terms. So it's like a first grade vocab lesson. <laughs> no, but like, you know, def- defining terms is important because I uh, we got to make sure that we're all 
on the same page here, or mm. not necessarily on the same page, but working with the same set of information uh, in order to maintain same, proper yeah. discourse and, and and the same ideas. We're not we're not quibbling over definitions. Yeah. No. So. Let's start with what we were just talking about, the differentiation between the furry fandom and pet play. Yeah. In my eyes, uh, and again, these are things that are ambiguous concepts with um, not much specific definition. There have been, uh, I'm sure, attempts by people much smarter than me to uh, give official definitions, but this is what I'm working with. Mm -hmm. So uh, pet play is a, a type of kink. Uh, it is an action. It is something that you do that involves, um, you know, acting in uh, an animalistic way, involves kind of the aesthetics of domestication, uh, power dynamic with another person. Um, whereas in my mind, uh, furry, uh, the furry fandom and the furry identity are a more kind of personal uh, identifier. It has to do more with... Um, it's often like something that is discovered like alone, although that that could, that could be true for those who enjoy pet play as well. But it, it's it's something that you actively identify as. I would you know encourage furry practices as well, but it's less it's less an action and more of an identity. Mm. Um, I agree with that. Yeah, it is not having sex in fursuits, which is the name for those uh, furry animal costumes. Uh, here's the thing about fursuits. They are absurdly expensive. Yes, famously very expensive. Which uh, means that it is cost prohibitive to a lot of self-identified furries. And I don't think that as cool as fursuits are, and huge respect to uh, the creators who make them, uh, that shit takes a lot of work. You guys rock. Yeah. But um, it's uh, it's not the fursuit is is one aspect of the furry fandom, but it is not the defining aspect by any stretch. Yeah, and I want to cycle back. I mean, we're talking about fursuits, but I'm going to cycle back to to the pet play angle because it's not just something you do or are, or you know, it's, you know pet play versus furries is this thing you do versus the thing you are. The thing about pet play is it's bounded. Explain. As with all kinks, there are bounds to it. You know, mm -hmm. it's not it's it's fulfilling a certain thing, but it's not necessarily recognition. Like for me, you know, like when I'm dressed up like a little kitty and I'm having fun doing a scene, that's an enclosed thing. Mm -hmm. The scene ends, and then I go back to being Lucy. Whereas Even the e furry identity is more expansive. Yeah, the furry the furry identity is not enclosed. You know, I was a furry before the scene started. I was a furry during the scene, and I'm a furry after the scene. I think that's a, that's a very good point to make. Yeah. And we're like, obviously, I will engage in cat-like behaviors because I think it's cute, it's fun, I like to do it. It's not a reflection of desire, necessarily, mm -hmm. in the same way that, like, I want to do... Like, I am attracted to... I'm attracted to primarily men, I know. Nobody's booing you. <sighs> I feel like a no, lot of people... Nobody's booing you. A lot of people are disappointed that I'm not a lesbian. That's on them. Um, this is a separate discourse. Separate let's, discourse. Let's let's tab that. Tab that for later. But you know, like that, my desire is informed by my furriness, but it is not informed by the fact that I like doing pet play. Mm-hmm. Totally. Let's talk about the aspects of the furry fandom. The aspects. So 
one thing, you know, you mentioned that you'll hear a lot is that, oh, furry is a fetish. I, I think my response to that is yes and. Mm. Is I think that anyone who tries to portray fear, uh, furry fandom as a purely non-sexual, um, you know, aesthetic um, is deluding themselves and other people. It is, it is, an acute if misrepresentation. Not, it is an acute misrepresentation. If it is not primarily sexual for many people who partake in it, it is at least uh, significantly sexual. Just like transness. Just like transness for many people. And that is okay. The important thing, the what separates it from just being a fetish is that it is also, as we've discussed, an expansive identity that includes things beyond just the, uh, the sexual it includes certainly the erotic and the sensual, um, and I think that those are persistent aspects that are kind of uh, almost always present in furriness. But um, the the explicitly sexual is a significant part, but not the only part. Mm-hmm. This is this is beyond fetish. This is an identity, although those things are certainly not mutually exclusive. But um, in this case, they are separate. Now, there is a uh, kind of uh, Patricia Taxon. Let's talk about her, the love, YouTuber. Love Patricia Taxon. I've been watching her for years. She's great. Uh, a wonderful furry YouTuber. Um, and in her video, the ethics are on the ethics of boinking animal people. She mm-hmm. lays out three primary aspects of what makes a piece of media furry. Mm-hmm. And that is the sensory the symbolic, and the autistic. And I, uh, I think that these three aspects extend beyond just furry media and into uh, broader furry culture and aesthetics. Yes. So let's define what those mean in context. Yeah. The sensory is probably the most accessible of these ideas mm-hmm. in that um, that which is furry is concerned with the, uh, the physical the sensual aspects of embodying that um, animal anthropomorphic idea. Yeah. Uh, I think that that word embodied is really crucial here. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that that is is one of, again, one of those key aspects of furry fandom. You know, I mean, obviously that's present in uh, the, t- the material, uh, in, in, you know, the fursuits and whatnot, but... The embodied extends um, beyond just, you know, that specific material aspect and has much more to do with this kind of um, intangible uh, sensory desire um, to experience the world from an animalistic um, point of view. Yeah, and it's not just experience the world from an animalistic point of view where you yourself are animalistic, but it's very important, like you thinking about dating simulators or um, visual novels or, or any other kind of, like, content that is furry, explicitly furry, like, you don't engage with them as if they are humans that look different. Mm-hmm. You, you think about the ears, the tongue, the snout, the paws. The tail. The tail. You think about the way the fur feels, the way that the body is inherently inhuman. Mm-hmm. The sensory isn't just like, I want to be, you know, furry, covered in fur, with a tail, with claws, with a little nose and cute little ears, little fangs, right? Like, that would be cute. But then thinking about what it would be like, you know, something that Patricia brings up in her video, to kiss a wolf snout. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very important part of the sensory. Is it's, So it's not just changing your experience, but ensuring that the experiences you are having and the desires expressed through furriness are, are recognized. Like, I would be fine, you know, known werewolf lover. Mm-hmm. The things that I like about werewolves are the claws, the snout, you know, like the, 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 the fangs. Mm-hmm. The things that make the werewolf inhuman are very much, to me, part of the erotic experience and desire. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's very sensual. Yeah. The symbolic uh, is obviously a lot more intangible. Patricia Taxon explains uh, the symbolic in the context of media, uh, furry media, that uh, does not try to justify its conceit of anthropomorphic animals. She gives the uh, examples of, like, uh, I believe it's Zootopia, and then uh, the other one, do you remember what it is? I do not. Oh, it's um, Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Ah, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, In her examples, Zootopia, uh, the world building of Zootopia works backwards from the animal conceit Mm -hmm. um, and tries to justify the existence of anthropomorphic animals in this world. Something uh, like Mouse by Art Spiegelman, the uh, critically acclaimed uh, graphic novel series. Um, I haven't read it, but I, I really got to get it's, around to it. You, you should. You should read it. It's really good. Has uh, takes no means whatsoever to try and uh, justify or work backwards from its conceit of the uh, the Jewish people as mice and uh, Nazis as cats. It's it's about uh, it's about the Holocaust. It's just got very heavy for a conversation about furry fandom. But hey, we're going here. I think uh, another example of uh, symbolic furry media, uh, although actually whether or not this is furry media, I think is open for debate. Is um, the video game slash visual novel Night in the Woods, which we both mm, love. Yes, uh, Night in the Woods takes absolutely no measures to justify why it is a world of anthropomorphic animals. Mm -hmm. They are just there. In fact, the main character, who is a cat, May, uh, you can, if you explore the little, like, local town as May, you can find a non-anthropomorphic cat existing in the town. (laughs) There is absolutely zero attempt to justify why that is there. And that, uh, by Taxon's uh, definition, makes it symbolic. I And I want to push back, actually, because I think the justification, the over-justification, can move out of the furriness. You know, I think... But, like, no one's going to sit here and tell me that Zootopia isn't furry. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I simply won't accept that because that's just not the case. And so I think part of it, you know, is does their animalness represent something mm-hmm. rather than so so i think that's important for the symbolic what is it symbolizing but when we talk about symbolism we also want to talk about the values that are implied by a symbol um a, you know a symbol is meant to present and represent not only a core basic idea but also there's a content to symbols. Mm-hmm. And then, as with all media, counting any symbol as media, there's a metatext. Something that I have the ability to talk about, but I don't know if we can bring this fully into the conversation, is flagging. Oh, okay. As a queer person, if I put, 
you know, a black handkerchief in my back right pocket, it does a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It signals one that I'm gay. Yeah, that's true. The 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 symbol carries many meanings. Exactly. So I'm gay, but then also, if you know the color code that I'm into BDSM, and if you know which side means what, right side of course means I'm a bottom. So you would know all of those things about me. Now, what is the most important of those is kind of in flux because of the audience and the meta, right? I'm not going to be like expecting someone to read the flag as cruising because of the context that I'm in. You know, if I'm not in, if I'm not actually cruising, I'm just doing it for the fashion or because I think it's fun or whatever, or because I'm you know, going to an event where I want to signal those things about me, right? But I don't want to actually hook up. I think like, uh, to get a little philosophical, one of the important things that defines a symbol versus a sign uh, is that its meaning is dependent on context, yeah. whereas a sign always has a fixed meaning. Exactly. Uh, and the the furry meaning, the meaning of, uh, you know, anthropomorphic animal people is far from fixed. Exactly. And that's why I think Zootopia, even though, again, disagreeing with um, Patricia Saxon here, um, is furry because the meta around Zootopia, Zootopia does not exist in a vacuum. It exists in a world that furries exist in, mm-hmm. primarily, and then it exists in a world where media has been made about Zootopia. Furry media has been made about Zootopia. And so I think just as being a woman, one is not born, but rather becomes a furry. And media, thus, is not necessarily all created, but rather transforms into furry media. This is, I, I think this is kind of a revolutionary concept. I haven't heard this articulated anywhere before. This is what we do on this podcast. This is what we do on this podcast. This is why people tune in to Radio Free. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, I think the, the inclusion of the, of the meta text is really important. Even if that meta text includes the infamous (laughs) Zootopia abortion fic. You thought we weren't going to talk about the Zootopia abortion comic. We are absolutely talking about the Zootopia abortion comic. (laughs) That is part of the meta text. It's part of the meta text. And yeah, it's important. We don't need to dive into the content. Uh, the content. Of... No, I feel like if you don't know the abortion, the Zootopia abortion, the abortion comic, you've seen it. You've seen it. You've seen two panels from it specifically. Absolutely. And also, welcome back, everyone who just went to go check out the. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Except, uh, no, I'm not. I no, not at all. So, welcome back, to everyone who's back to joining us. <laughs> um. Yeah, so that's my thing. Zootopia is furry because it is embraced by furries mm-hmm. to one extent or another, and that's enough, in my opinion. For So symbolism is something that can be brought in to a group that represents the group in some way as part of that um, definition. And so that, does, that brings us to, to the autistic, I think it does. Before we get to the autistic, I want to talk about B-stars. Let's talk about B-stars. Which so, I have not consumed any of. Which you need to get on immediately. Okay. B-Stars is, uh, I'm going to use the phrase critically acclaimed again because it is well-earned, is a critically acclaimed manga uh, and Netflix original anime adaptation about um, a anthropomorphic wolf named Legoshi. Oh, he's hot. You've never seen Legoshi before? I No, I have. I just forgot which one he was. He's, he's, he's cute. 
Bridget, cue vine boom sound effect. He's a high schooler. Fuck. <laughs> uh, I take it, it back. It's okay. Okay. It is okay to acknowledge the erotic in Beastars because it is a central concern of the text. Okay. Is the erotic and the sensual. Um, Beastars is basically about Lego She navigating uh, a world where um, predator animals and prey animals must coexist, uh, despite the fact that um, predator animals have their own uh, instincts to kill and eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is obviously a world where that is highly, highly stigmatized. Uh, it explores themes of sexual um, and identity repression, of um, you know, exploring uh, deviance uh, and queerness um, in a highly class uh, and otherwise stratified world. Um, what is Zootopia but materialist? It is. It is kind of materialist Zootopia. I adore Beastars. Mm-hmm. I adore it um, because of many things, including um, its subtextual explanation of queerness. Uh, there is some queerness uh, built into the text of it, um, but the v- vast majority of it is subtextual. There are um, some really great uh, video essays out there about Beastars, including Jack Saint's um, Lego She is Gay, uh, and, uh, I believe he has another one called, um, Beastars is a deviant furry masterpiece. Um, uh, check them out. Uh, I have, uh, read the entire thing. I've watched all of the, the adaptation so far. Uh, and Patricia Taxon claims, um, uh, or does not at least identify Beastars as symbolically furry. Which, I don't know if I agree with or not. Because the, uh, it, the world does take great pains to justify its conceit of anthropomorphic animal people. In fact, uh, so much of the world exists to um, explore that conceit. Uh, And while that is true, it's just, it's so invested in the sensual, which she does talk about. Like, it is so invested in what it is like to be a wolf boy uh, and experience both... Uh, predator instinct and erotic attraction conflating uh, as a wolf boy. And Lego She is autistic. Let's call it like it is. Lego She is fucking autistic. Whether or not it is symbolically furry, I think is is open to debate. But uh, I, I I think it, it excels so well in those other two categories. I I would like to include Beastars in the furry canon. Obviously, I haven't seen Beastars. Um, but I think including it in is relevant because like we're not again symbolism is something that's communicated and the context is super important and so i agree that it should be in the canon but when i think about why it wouldn't again i'm like talking about something i don't know anything about but queerness and i think tying back to like when we talk about furries fundamentally we are talking about desire Mm-hmm. And I think it's more akin to trans desire than just gay desire. I completely agree. Because the transformation of understanding oneself. Mm-hmm. Like, I have been a gay boy. You know, I'm both, I'm a woman of faggot experience, but I'm also a faggot of woman experience. Amen. And for me, that 
is an important thing that informs my desire, but it isn't just I am attracted to a certain thing, right? Trans desire for me is very much about I am becoming a person, transforming into this person, or in pet play, slipping into pet space Mm -hmm. to achieve a set of desires. Yes. Rather than just feeling those desires outright. A a cognitive and intentional shift Mm -hmm. has to happen first. And Beastars is so concerned with that desire and what it means. Uh, I cannot recommend it enough uh, to furries and non-furries alike. it is, it's, it's so good. I don't think anyone's listening at this point who isn't a furry. <laughs> if you're not a furry and you've made it 45 minutes into this episode... You have some reflection to do, my friend. I, yeah, so they, like, if you don't identify as a furry, you might... You still... Give it a while. Read or watch Beastars and get back to us. <laughs> so let's talk about the autistic. Mm. I love Patricia Taxon's discussions of autism. Um, she has... This great video, um, I think it's older than the video that we're referencing most of this episode, um, about uh, the Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared YouTube series Mm. and uh, the Superflex learning curriculum, uh, which was a form of uh, applied behavioral analysis that was popular with uh, teaching autistic children in the uh, early to mid-2000s. Um, I was not directly taught with the Superflex learning curriculum, but, um, I was adjacent to those being taught and, uh, definitely internalized a lot of that applied behavioral analysis, which, um, is extremely harmful and basically tries to get you to not be autistic. It, it, it demonizes, uh, autism and tries to make you as normative as possible. Anyway, that aside, uh, why is the furry autistic? I raised this question. I don't know because I, I think it's like with transness, mm-hmm. right? I think allistic people are less likely to transition, mm-hmm. but I don't think they're any less likely to be trans. This There's statistic evidence for this. Yeah. So autistic trans people are more likely to come out rather than, you know, allistic trans people are more likely to stay closeted or find an other outlet for their transness. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that be through cross-dressing or drag or a lot of other things. And I think, so the, the autistic and the sensory are, are deeply tied for me as an autistic person. Obviously one of the, uh, key identifiers of autism in young children is, um, extreme sensory sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that is something that I definitely have and embody. Uh, I still cover my ears when sirens go by, uh, and... It makes me feel kind of silly, but I need to do it or else I will take massive psychic damage. Uh, and because autism is is so embodied and so sensory, uh, I think it really lends itself to the furry. Um, and also, uh, part of it is like, autism makes understanding societal norms not only more difficult, but being autistic makes you more likely to resist those societal norms. Because once you understand them, or even if you don't, you understand how hollow and constructed they are and how rejecting them can feel so much more liberating. And I think part of that is, um, as autistic furries, we reject notions of humanity 
in favor of uh, that which is inhuman and animalistic because it feels authentic to ourselves. Absolutely. That's, yeah. Like, again, I don't think furries are more likely to be autistic. I just think autistic people are. are, Well, I think autistic people are more likely to explore furriness than the non-autistic people. I don't know many holistic furries. They exist. I don't know many of them. I don't know that many holistic furries. Um, I don't know that many, like, I am not autistic. Mm -hmm. Put, put, Put this on the record. Not autistic. But... I, I, because I don't fit in neatly to that definition, and also there are other more likely definition explanations. We, we, we were, were schizo, schizo podcast. Um, <laughs> you know, that's for me. But I think the neurodivergence of it, you know, being able to find meaning effectively, you know, for me, there's something very much about my experience with the sensory elements for it is it's very important for me for that there to be a sensory experience that isn't, that's new, basically, as opposed to, like, not a sensitivity, but, like, I need to search out it's, and pull in yeah, a new... Yeah, it's called sensory seeking. There you go. Thank you, my therapist. Uh, yeah, sensory seeking behavior is uh, a huge part of a lot of neurodivergence, autism included. Um, and, yeah, the... The sensual embodiment of being a furry is, you know, it is it is a novel sensory experience. Mm-hmm. And it is, I think, very understandable that a lot of neurodivergent people seek that out. Yeah. And also, like, tying the furry back into pet play. Um, one of the ways that I really enjoy, like, being able to, to drop into pet space mm-hmm. and having pet space be... Um, not only a psychological state, but a physical sensory state is really important for me as a neurodivergent person, just because, yeah, I don't, cause like, I don't, when I'm in pet space, I don't want to feel like a person pretending to be a cat. I want to feel like a cat. Mm-hmm. Totally. I think another aspect of autism and furry that I, I touched on earlier is that pursuit of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, famously, autistic people make very bad liars. Mm -hmm. I am a bad liar. Many autistic people, not all, but many autistic people struggle with that a lot. Uh, That has to do with um, kinds of literal thinking um, and a desire to uh, follow um, moral codes. Um, This is a a, a broader conversation about autism. But uh, what's relevant here is I believe, I genuinely believe that the pursuit of the authentic self is a critical part of autism. I think that that is why uh, autistic people are significantly more likely to be trans Mm -hmm. is because we as autistic people simply cannot accept a version of ourselves that is a lie, that is not authentic. Mm -hmm. And we are constantly in pursuit of the authentic self. And that means that for some of us, we are trans. We are furry. A huge overlap there. Yeah. Um, I would even go so far as to state that you can't be trans without being at least a little bit of a furry. This is not a. This is not gatekeeping. This is expanding. Yeah. Um, if you if you're trans and you don't think you're at least a little bit of a furry, try it out. I think as trans people, we become used to the idea of embodying that which is non-human 
Um, and I think that gets into like uh, neo pronouns and uh, not just non-binary genders, but uh, what people deride as sparkle genders. Uh, oh my god, I haven't yeah, heard we're, that we're, term in forever. Yeah, no, we're talking about fucking Mogai. We're going to talk about Mogai. Are we also going to talk about Therians? We will talk about Therians, uh, but I want to. I want to focus on the the gender stuff. Oh, I, this is. I mean, this is very deeply related. Yeah, I want to start with the gender stuff and then get into the Therian, uh, which is another term that we will define in a moment. Uh, this episode is is a huge word vomit. I think for both of us, this has been a long time coming. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so. I'm someone who spends a lot of time on furry Twitter. I see a lot of furry art, erotic or not. Mm -hmm. And something I notice is um, a lot of furry uh, OCs, original characters, use neopronouns, are are listed as using neopronouns. I think uh, even in Patricia Taxton's video, she gives an example of uh, a furry original character that uses neopronouns. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, and also, I think, uses um, multiple sets of pronouns as well. And I think there's a really deep relation there, which is the, um, the this is, I think, both society, societally imposed, but also self-embraced, which is that, what I mentioned earlier, the feeling of being inhuman. Mm-hmm. And some of that is through social ostracization and discrimination and often being treated as subhuman. And we can obviously fight against that uh and regard it as awful as it actually is mm. there is another side to that which is many of us who receive that treatment and go no we're not going to we're, we we can fight this but we can also embrace that which is inhuman as a space for play and a space for fun it is a kind of reclaiming that i think a lot of people myself included do because it's fun to be a furry. It is fun to explore one's gender. Gender can be a space of pleasure and play and experimentation. And yeah, I'm fucking, I'm on the side of the sparkle genders. Come at me. I, so I have a very different experience and this is like, very interesting. So I was the co-president of an LGBTQ student organization in 2018, which was as insane as it sounds. Yep. Yeah, I believe um, it. Lot of neo pronouns, lot of people with lots of genders, and I have not done a lot of gender like weird exploration or play in my life because of just there's been a lot of like the necessity of you know shutting up and putting your head down basically. Mm-hmm. Um, which for me, coming from my perspective, it's very important that I am read as a woman in a lot of spaces. But through furriness, like, my fursona is a boy. I, th- I think that's really important to note. Yeah. Like, furriness as a... Uh, and part of that is, like, projection onto uh, the way that a lot of people express their furriness through, uh, you know, drawn furry original character art. Um, and that being a, a great space for gender exploration. Uh, for me, I extend that into my, you know, embodied self in the world. Like... I, you know, I don't identify as a woman. I don't identify as a man. I don't really have a great, I I don't really have great terminology for describing my gender. Mm -hmm. I just feel like a dog person a lot of the time. I I just do. Uh, And I think that is a lovely segue to Therianism. Therianism, yes. 
How would you define Therianism? Because I have a definition that I'm working with. My understanding is Therianism is, it is, it is kind of a step beyond furry in that it is an active identity, not just with an animal, but as an animal. I don't know many Therians personally. I know there's a lot of them who are very active online, um, as with furries, actually as uh, Anna Valens, come on the podcast. Please, oh my God, please, Anna, come on the podcast. As Anna Valens mentions in her book, Tumblr Porn, she mm-hmm. actually uh, discusses furry porn and some of the the early beginnings of the furry fandom being online. So the internet is, is a really crucial medium for the existence of furry and theorianthropy. And also not only online in that it's a place for us to come together, but it's a place, you know, one of my criticisms of the internet as it is, and specifically with, you know, what we you know we consider user-generated content, you know, which has its origins before social media and forums. Mm-hmm. Like I have a lot of criticism of this criticisms of this. I have a lot of criticisms of this because it's all symbolic. There's no everything is signals, signs, and symbols. Mm-hmm. There's no depth, there's no you can't really carry on a lot of like conventional media discourses using, you know, conventional pre-internet media. And I think that's a problem generally. My criticism, one of my criticisms, but I think it not just is a place for people to meet each other for shared interests, but it's a place where shared interests can accelerate each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not that I am a theory and I go online to find people who are like me, but I go online and I see these signs and symbols that allow me to understand myself using this common language, which has already been developed. Furry fandom as it exists today would or simply would not exist without the internet. Absolutely. These things are, are ir, uh, you know, irreconcilably tied together. Now, I'm curious what your definition of theory and theory anthropy is. So my definition is it's someone who identifies not their gender, but their being as harsh as not, as in part not human. And very specifically using that not human space to identify or align with an existing animal. So it's not just not identifying as human, but using that and saying, I can put, I can describe my desires, behaviors, and psyche using an animal as a symbol, right? Someone who's like, I'm a Therian in that I'm a dog. For me, that isn't just saying like, oh, I identify as a dog, but I use dog to describe my non-human identification. Hmm. Maybe I am a little bit of a Therian. I, it's, some, some vaults are best left closed. I don't know. I just, like, I identify both, like, in this, in the sensory sense, but also in, like, the, the, I don't know what the, like, theory word for this is, but in the, like, the personality sense, you know, I'm, like, uh, I'm loyal. I'm a little bit silly, but I can also be very protective, um, and aggressive when pushed to it, or like when the people I love are threatened. Uh, you've seen that firsthand. Yes, I have. I, both literally and, and metaphorically, I know how to bark. Yeah, Ma- many an occasion, many an occasion. That's the nice bark. <laughs> <laughs> um, am I a Therian? This is, this is maybe, like you said, a, a question best left unanswered. Um, Shout out to all the Therians out there. 
We love you. Let's talk about furry media. Let's talk about not furry media. Let's take a break so I can stretch my legs. And then let's talk about furry media. Welcome back from our break. Rough. <laughs> it's getting late in the day, uh, and my head is just... Uh, no, no thoughts, just dog. No thoughts, just dog. I My thoughts are all currently... I don't know. It's been a bad brain day for me. Sometimes my brain doesn't work. Yes. But that's okay, because we're here to talk about furry media. Yes, we are. Now, I have, I have a master list here. A, mas- a master list. I got a master list. We are talking about Beastars. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I get called daddy in bed. I, I don't. I, I feel like nobody believes who listens to this podcast that I top, which is fair based on how I present myself, but it does happen. It's true. There are there are, are witnesses who can attest. Uh, anyway. Furry media. Furry media. I want to talk about Night in the Woods. I think Night in the Woods is furry media. I think it's not. Um, why? I think it satisfies two two out of the three qualifications for furry media, mm-hmm. which is it absolutely satisfies the symbolic. Absolutely. As, particularly based on Patricia Taxon's definition. It is also very, like, May, May is autistic. Yeah. Uh, I like, mean, I, I think I think she's more written to be kind of like ADHD. Uh, but she's almost like, she's, she's, oh my God, she's like so autistic. She's very neurodivergent. Yeah. She's very neurodivergent. But not a minor. <laughs> not a minor. Um, however... It is not interested in the sensory experience of being an animal person. I... Maybe if we want to use your approach of the meta text and talking about Night in the Woods fan art, because, again, we are talking about the furry fandom here. I think if you want to look at the meta text of it, then I agree that it's furry media. I think that it's furry because I want to have Angus wrap his big bear arms around me. See, but that's not in the text. That's true. The te- I don't believe that the text is furry. I, I, I agree that there is a furry meta text that surrounds Night in the Woods. I would say it's not only that there's a furry meta text. I would say there's a furry reading. Tell me, tell me your furry reading. Well, just because of those things, you know, as a furry, you read them into the text. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading furry into the text. Like if I am a furry and I am familiar with and comfortable with and capable of expressing my desires, like, yeah, I want Angus's big, strong bear arms to hold me. You know, I'm reading furry into a text that I would agree is not very concerned with the, sen- the sensual and the sensory. Mm-hmm. But so textually, I don't think Night in the Woods is furry media, but there's a furry reading of it. You know, just as like there, you know, we as queer people read queerness into a lot of non-explicitly mm-hmm. queer, queer media. We as furries will read furry fandom into non-explicitly furry texts. I, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Like I'm looking right now uh, at some Night in the Woods fan art and like right now I'm furry. Looking, yeah. It's very furry. This particular art is of the the character Greg, who's kind of like a he's like a fox boy. He's a fox boy, very clearly at the bottom. Yeah, he's a gay kind of punk fox boy. Twink. Yeah, he's a, he's a fox twink. Uh, and in this particular piece of fan art, not only do we get a lot more definition on the fur because the the game is pretty low poly with yeah. its graphics, uh, but we there's a uh, he's wearing uh, he he works at this like. 7-Eleven type store yeah. and he's wearing one of the like big gulp cups on one of his little fox ears and that is very furry 
that is just not something you can do as a person. You can't wear a cup on your furry little fox ear. I've got cups on my ears is from the game originally. That's that's true. That's true. Furry reading. We're, we're furry reading the text. My mind has been changed. Furrying the text. It's like queer. Yes. I could totally like... I wish I took classes on furries instead of gender and capitalism. <laughs> Well, you're using the tools you developed taking those classes on gender and capitalism to inform your furry readings. My professor was a Pinochet apologist. <laughs> what the fuck? Anyways. Never mind. Never go to... I'm going to bleep that out. Uh, when we were uh, generating this list, uh, this master, master list, uh, the 1950s uh, Disney animated Robin Hood came up, which I hadn't seen. Ah, uh, okay. But, I would say it is very concerned with the physicality of the animal form. Mm-hmm. There are tails, there's the exaggerated animal movements, they walk like animals, like on their hind legs, and um, I want to kiss Robin Hood's little fox face. Mm-hmm. But is it autistic? Disney is unfortunately severely lacking in autism. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say, with the exception of uh, Elsa from the Frozen series, who is autistic. Elsa's ab- absolutely autistic. Um, Elsa Elsa is autistic lesbian representation. Yeah, but I don't think Robin Hood. You're right. I don't think the Robin Hood movie is that autistic. But I do think there is a furry reading of it. But I don't think that furry reading of it, like with Night in the Woods, transforms it into furry media. Mm-hmm. I think it's just something that we can see as either a precursor to furry fandom or something that has been brought into an existing furry fandom. But mm-hmm. it's not like anyone, you know, people might make furry drawings of it, but it's 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 primarily, I think, not concerned with the otherness. Mm-hmm. It definitely does use the animals as symbols, but, and, and, you know, their animalistic nature is representative, but they're not super concerned with, with it. They're, they're, it's, it's almost irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It's comic. It's affect. It's affect. Another term that comes up a lot on this podcast. It's because I read Lauren Berlant while I was dirt poor living in Albany. That'll do it. That'll do it. Uh, we also, we talked about Pokemon. We did talk about Pokemon. I'm going to say Pokemon, not inherently furry. Pokemon is not inherently furry. There are, I think, characters in Pokemon that could be read as furry, um, which generated this uh, brilliant meme that I'm going to play. Can I I play this meme? Yeah, play the meme. I'll just dub it in. Or Bridget will dub it in. Here it is. It's called Sun. We have to talk about your Pokemon. Sun... We need to have a serious discussion about the type of Pokemon you've been catching lately. Elaborate. All right, so this one? This one right here? This one's just a straight-up man. No, he has a tail. (laughs) (laughs) The joke is that the tail looks like anal beads. Yeah. Uh, And also, uh, you can't see it, obviously, but... In uh, the video, all of these Pokemon are very heavy on the anthro side of anthropomorphic uh, and extremely masculine uh, and buff. And I'm going to say that these Pokemon are top-coated. They are top. (laughs) 
they're top coated. It's it's something you see a lot in like itch itch.io furry media. Mm-hmm. Is this really burly, hyper masculine? Which as 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 little as little fags, we didn't talk about too much. But there's a lot of hyper masculine. We didn't even talk about pup play. We didn't even talk about pup play. I think that's for the pet play ep- de- dedicated episode. That's for the pet play dedicated episode. But there's. There's something inherently furry about the, that. But, like, you know, there's this hyper-masculine um, furriness that I think is depicted in some Pokemon designs. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are any really femme. I mean, you've got Gardevoir, mm-hmm. the one that Pokemon that everyone's horny for. Mm-hmm. But that's not because she's an animal. That's because she's a whole woman. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's just a straight-up fairy lady. That is just a woman. Yeah. You know, and like Deoxys, another hot Pokemon, is just a woman. Mm-hmm. And and so I think, you know, when we talk about the Pokemon that are these top-coded figures, there's a spectrum of like, yeah, that one Pokemon, that is just a straight-up man with an anal beads tail. Yep. Yep. But Incineroar... I don't know what Incineroar looks like. I'm going to look him up. Inc- looks like a furry. Incineroar. Incineroar. That's furry. That's, that's furry. furry. That's... Oh my god, that's furry. Yeah, he he's got fur, a tail, and extremely anthropomorphic hands. But they've got claws. They've got claws. That's that's furry. Uh, and I uh, I, I want to get back to that uh, masculinity and furry in a second. Uh, but I think before that, we need to talk about Vaporeon and the ethics of boinking animal people. It is unethical to fuck Vaporeon. I'm looking up the the Vaporeon copy pasta. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm just gonna read it just so that we have audio of me reading it. It's going in the final cut for sure. We're bracketing this with fucking Vaporeon is morally wrong, and we will we will explain why. And here's why. If you need us to explain why fucking Vaporeon is morally wrong, I'm glad that someone told you fucking Vaporeon is morally wrong. Weird that it took you so long. Glad that someone told you. Vaporeon cannot consent. Vaporeon does not have human intelligence. Among so many other reasons. Among so many other reasons. Anyway, here's the Vaporeon copypasta. Oh, God. Hey, guys. Did you know that in terms of male, human, and female Pokemon breeding, Vaporeon is the most compatible Pokemon for humans? Not only are they in the field egg group, which is mostly comprised of mammals, Vaporeon are an average of 3 foot 3 tall and 63.9 pounds. This means they're large enough to be able to handle human dicks, and with their impressive base stats for HP and access to acid armor, you can be rough with one, Jesus Christ. Due to their mostly water-based biology, there's no doubt in my mind that an aroused Vaporeon would be incredibly wet, so wet that you could easily have sex with one for hours without getting sore. They can also learn the moves Attracts, Baby Doll Eyes, Captivate, Charm, and Tail Whip, along with not having to uh, with not having fur to hide nipples, so it'd be incredibly easy to get one in the mood. With their abilities Water Absorb and Hydration, they can easily recover from fatigue with enough water. No other Pokemon comes close to this level of compatibility. Also, fun fact, if you pull out enough, you can make your Vaporeon turn white. Vaporeon is literally built for human dick. Ungodly defense stat plus high HP pool plus acid armor means it can take cock all day, all shapes and sizes, and still come for more. That was worse than I thought it would be. Okay, let's let's dig into this. Because there is, a, there is an assumption being made at the core of all of this. 
is that someone that is three foot three and sixty three pounds is big enough to take human dick. That's the assumption that underlines the entire copy pasta. Yikes! Yeah, uh, we're reading this because it's funny. Uh, don't be that guy, Jesus Christ! Don't be that fucking guy. If any of one defends the Vaporeon fucking post in our DMs, you are getting blocked. <laughs> yeah, instant block. Because uh, again, the primary assumption is that something that is three foot three and sixty three pounds can take human dick. Can take human dick, and that's. I don't know. There's some troubling implications. Yeah, there's not only that, but this idea, you know, part of it and, and part of the ethical problems is you and Vaporeon are not on equal grounds. You are not both autonomous creatures, right? Like, again, there's the consent issue. It's, you know, this fact that the Vaporeon's a fucking animal. But then also, you have caught the Vaporeon, Right. It's, it's a degree of control that is, extends even beyond contemporary human-animal relationships. You physically possess it at all times. It does not have... You control its ability to experience and engage with the world. You train it. You cultivate its experience and skills to, a, to, to something. It's very unethical to fuck Vaporeon. Yes. I want to go back to masculinity... And furry porn. Anything to get us away from this topic, yes. Yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, so, I'm going to put you guys onto something. E621.net. The <laughs> world's premier furry porn site. Search by tags. It doesn't get better. I've talked about this on Dysphoria. Um, the, uh, well, I guess the episode itself didn't end up being eight hours, but the, the infamous eight-hour recording session. I... That, I blacked that out. That was quite a day. That was quite a day. Now, um, something I uh, have noticed on my time spent on E621 is that, if not a majority, but a large, significant, perhaps a plurality Very of furry porn is... Uh, between uh, characters that are depicted as male-male. So I think it's important to acknowledge that just as the furry fandom's very trans, um, it is also very gay. A lot of the kind of most uh, well-known furry media, like the visual novel Ad Astra, is very gay uh, and very horny and very political. Uh, I, I gotta read Ad Astra. I've seen the uh, the infamous three-hour-long Ad Astra video essay. Highly recommend if you can sit through a three-hour video essay. It's fascinating. But yeah, the furry community space is is very inclusive to both trans and gay identities. Uh, in fact, I don't remember ever seeing just cis heterosexual furry porn. I've seen straight T for T furry porn. I've seen a lot of straight for T for T. I've seen a lot of furry porn that it's either straight T for T or straight, but one of them is trans Mm -hmm. or gay or lesbian sapphic, Mm -hmm. but usually trans sapphic. Mm -hmm. And then also a lot of furry porn that's concerned less with the arrangement of, of, of gender and more concerned with like exploring inherent taboos, mm-hmm. right? Like I see a lot of furry porn that is, you know, to men or to guys, to male coded characters. 
and they're one or both are ostensibly straight. Really? I haven't seen much of that. It's pretty good, I can think <laughs> The porn recommendation section. Yes. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely in like furry Twitter see a lot of exploration of taboo stuff that we've, uh, you know, discussed here on the podcast before. I mean, furry itself is, I think, inherently kind of taboo. Oh, yeah. Incredibly taboo. As we discussed earlier. Um, but yeah, I think it's very interesting to see... Like I've I've seen a lot of uh, furry OCs uh, have like top surgery scars, mm. which is 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 really cool to me because it's like you are taking what is like it's kind of a combination of like an assigned female at birth human body mm-hmm. and an anthropomorphic form and combining them and then taking the extra step to then modify that combined furry body. And I think that that is just like the like ultimate, that is the like most, that that is furry like at its most condensed. I could not agree more. And it's just because, it's not just because there's a detachment from the human, but even when you are presented with any possibility, right? There's no reason to not draw your fursona as basically having been a certain way, but it's this acceptance that the body is not is not fixed, that the body is changeable, mm-hmm. and we can celebrate that very effectively through furry content, and also, you can eroticize the fuck out of it. Yeah. In a way that is sometimes... It's hot. In a way that's sometimes difficult to do with real people. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like, we talked about furry being a space for gender exploration, uh, and I think that furry art is a way for people to project that, in, uh, you know, exploration uh, onto a form that they can imagine themselves embodying. Uh, I mean, again, it, it's, it's more projection than it is kind of materialist sensory embodiment, but, um, like, for people who are closeted or not able to transition for whatever reason, I believe that like furry art can be a huge space for uh, not just exploration, but expression as mm. well. Because, you know, there is a lot of aesthetic expression in furry art. Uh, you know, does your character wear clothes? What kind of fashion do they uh, wear if they do? Like, how do they style their fur? Stuff like that is all a means of exploration that is not always possible in the material world. And I think that that is a beautiful thing and absolutely worth exploring. Like my fursona, uh, which is a term that is often used for like an individual's kind of most self-identified original character is is drawn wearing outfits that are either explicitly outfits that I have worn and wear sometimes or are you know very similar to my fashion sense and to me that's like that's a a form of self-expression is is kind of dictating the the ways that my character portrays themselves like there's a there's a reason why uh my fursona is like my profile picture on mm-hmm. a lot of my like various accounts is because it feels like often a more authentic version of myself than a a picture of me. I I mean that's very trans, you know, is is like seeing a picture of yourself and not necessarily identifying with that is not feeling like that's me. It's also uh you know part of why I love 
uh, cartoons and, you know, animated media, because it's often easier for me, especially as an autistic person, to see myself represented that way than in, you know, the, the real material world. Yeah. So what have we learned today? We have learned that autists are furries. Furries are autistic. Not all, but many. <laughs> that furriness and transness are deeply linked and are some of the highest forms of authentic expression of oneself. Yeah. I mean, my first one is a nudist, so... And that's okay. There's still an aesthetic to that. Yeah. It's... Because my first one has the same problem that I do, which is that the hips don't work with the rest of the sizing. <laughs> Built like Mewtwo, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think I think learn in terms of what we learned, like I think it's valuable to think about, explore, consider not only gender, but how to make spaces of play. Right? Like people will often say gender is a space of play, but like that's only one space to play with your gender. You can play with your gender in the furry space as mm-hmm. well. And I think I think our identities are flexible, fungible, and they're ooey-gooey, and we can play with them and our identities uh, in a lot of places. And we don't just have to be like, oh, gender is a state of play. Like, yeah, sure, gender can be. But basically, if you're only playing with your gender in a very fluid sense where you're not exploring humanity and sensory desire and sensory seeking, um, maybe give that a shot. You might be missing out. Is furry right for you? It just might be. Yeah. Many, many, many are saying this. I'm always saying this. That's our episode. Thanks for listening. This Um, has been Radio Radio Free Free Use. Use.